It's, it is so good to be in the house of the Lord and be with brothers and sisters in Christ who not only share our beliefs and values, but share our, our world at some, at some level. And just, it's a good place to be, a comfortable place, and then to be in the Lord's presence. I'm just glad that we can be here tonight. Thank you for being here. Anybody else looking forward to snow? Thank, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> three of us? Is there only three of us? Four? Five? Six? Okay. But you're not staying for the snow. No. <laughs> okay, they're looking forward to it for us. I see how it is. Okay. I just enjoy it. It's just something I've always enjoyed. Personally, just really enjoyed it. You don't like driving in it? I really like driving in it. That's really fun. I like everything about it. But, what? If it was warm, I'd love it. If it was warm, you'd love it. Okay. Okay. I guess that's possible. You know, as a kid, my dad was in the Navy. And so I grew up, as I came of kind of awareness of life, that's the life I knew. That's the world I knew. My dad was in the Navy. And... When, we, when I was first born, I was born in New Jersey, and then we moved before I was a year old to Washington, and he was stationed in, uh, at Oak Harbor, and then uh, we moved to San Jose, Northern California, then we moved to Florida, and then we moved to a part of my childhood that was probably the most exciting. We moved to the Philippines. It was very exciting, and we were on a little tiny base across the bay from Manila, capital of, of uh, the Philippines. And it was a little tiny air base about a mile square. But for a six-year-old kid, that seemed like the world. And what was so cool about it, I mean, it was a long time ago. It was 67, 68 or something. Uh, it was long enough ago that, you know, for a mile square base, we had the run of the whole thing. It was as if the whole base was our backyard. It was a great thing. But when we first moved there, it wasn't quite like that. What happened was they didn't have quite the housing on base so we lived in a military compound outside the base in the city of Cavite in the Philippines. Anybody here have a military background at all? Had this kind of experience at all? Did you ever live off base? Now, it's one thing when you live off base because you're in the country and it's, uh, and I mean, I don't mean country like the woods. I mean, you're in the national country. You're not in America. And so what it was is there was a government compound that the government paid for but it was still in the Philippines. So there was, there was uh, stone walls all the way around with barbed wire and razor wire, and then on the top of the walls was covered with cement with glass in it. And so when you were inside, it felt like, you know, you, it seemed really like you're in a whole other world and safe. And I remember as a young kid thinking, why do we need that up there? It just seems so brutal. You know, and, and we were constantly told, well, that's for your protection. There's people, you know, that would come and steal. And that did happen. And sometimes people climb over and, you know, steal our bikes or whatever. That happened. But this is what happened one day. We were getting ready to go to church on Good Friday. And as we started to take the car out of the compound, there was a guy who was always at the gate who would open it anytime we needed to go in and out. And uh, he says, you can't go out today. And we said, what do you mean we can't go out? And he says, well, you can't go out because, look, and then I remember sitting in the back seat of the car. We had a big station, a big Pontiac station wagon. It was light blue. And I remember looking out the windows, and it was wall-to-wall people outside the gates. We said, what is going on? And, and the guy at the gate, he didn't really speak very much English. He just kept saying, Good Friday, Good Friday. And we're like, well, yeah, we know it's Good Friday. We're trying to get to church. So he said, well, you could walk because it's only a mile. So we thought, okay, we'll walk. So we got the whole family out. So at the time, it was myself, and I have a sister a year older. So my mom and dad, 
and we, we walked out of the compound. It wasn't the first time we'd walked to the base. It was fun to walk there because you go by all the shops and people. And in the Philippines, they have these little things called jeepneys. Anybody ever heard of that? It's like an, it's an old military vehicle. It's not really a jeep, but they called them that. And then they would decorate them up with all sorts of stuff. It was just fun. It was just exciting as a kid. So I remember we walked outside the base, and what was happening, it looked like it was a parade. So, you know, I'm a kid. I want to see the parade. So I, I distinctly remember trying to get to the crowd, through the crowd to the street, and my mom's trying to pull me along. So she's in a combination of trying to protect us and pull you along and get you somewhere. And they didn't know what was going on either, but it looked like a parade. And I could see through, you know, because you're littler, I could see through the crowd, and what I could see, I didn't want to see. <laughs> Let me show you a little bit of what I saw. What I saw was <clears throat> this. I looked through and I saw people bleeding. And I saw grandmas crawling on their knees. And I thought, what is this? And at that point, you know what you would do as a parent, right? You're not going to sit down and explain everything. Because they didn't know what was going on either. So they did what every good parent would do, and they just kind of jerked us along, and let's go, quick. And we moved quite along, and we went to church. And it wasn't really until years later, and I'm sure my parents probably explained it at the time, but to my little mind, it didn't make sense. But years later, I remember I was watching TV once, and I heard that the annual celebration in the Philippines, it's kind of a big practice, is that people get crucified on Good Friday. And I thought, oh my goodness, I saw that. I mean, I didn't see the crucifixion. I saw the parade and the people crawling through the streets. And as a kid, I remember just kind of being traumatized by it and it kind of going back in my memory. And then as a young adult, when I finally heard about it again and kind of explored and listened to it, I don't know if you've ever done that before. You have a memory as a child and it's not really complete. And then as an adult, you go back and it's like, oh, wow, that's what that was. Now I get it. What was happening and what happens every Good Friday in the Philippines is they reenact the Via de la Rosa with Christ going to the cross, but people do it themselves. And this young man that you see on the left, he is whipping himself, trying to share in Christ's sufferings. If I could be, if I could be magnanimous with it, that's what he's doing. He's trying to pay for his own sin. And he's punishing himself as Christ was punished. And that man on the cross, there are people that do this, and a lot of guys do it. I mean, more than you can imagine. Nails through the hands and everything. And I didn't want to show you a lot of graphic pictures because that's not my intent tonight. It's to gross you out. My point is this, that these people who are doing this and do it every year are trying to, to atone for their sins from the last year. Now, they're not the only ones who do this. Unfortunately, in our human... <laughs> this is... I, I, I'm not making fun of Lent, but this is a Lent card that you could give to somebody else who is celebrating Lent. And this girl says, I believe I'm getting closer to God by spending a few weeks not eating M&Ms. Because other people give up other things during Lent. And what is the purpose of that? They're not the only ones who do this. These are Shiite Muslims who, again, are beating and cutting themselves. That young man is doing the same thing. And then this man is punishing himself on a bed of thorns. I didn't feel like showing you some of the other Shiite Muslims who cut themselves with knives along their heads. It's just too much. I, that's not what I wanted to do, is to show you that. You're probably familiar with Hindus who 
we would call it asceticism, but they live a life of, you know, severe asceticism and live without to gain somehow a higher place, a higher spiritual place. I, I'm not, these are Christian um, monk. Asceticism is when you try to punish yourself and do without and live as, as uh, simple and, and without life as possible. These pe- this people right here are touring. These are monk quarters, Christian monk quarters. These quarters right here are in Turkey. So the monks, they would sleep on these hard cement, small little areas to somehow purify themselves and help themselves become more holy. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? No, really, because we work hard to achieve things in life, don't we? I heard a saying once, you know, I put a piano keyboard up here. I heard a saying once, you know, there was this great piano player playing beautifully, and after the concert, somebody came up and said, boy, I'd give my life to play like that. And the piano player turned and looked at him and said, hmm, really? Because I did. He did give his life to play like that. Anybody who reaches or attains that level, they've got to pay the price, right? I mean, if you're going to be truly great at anything. I have a niece that was a great power tumbler, and now she somewhat regrets that life only because it took her whole life. She had no childhood. She was homeschooled on the way to practice, and practiced, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And then, yeah, she competed internationally, but for her, she looks at it and wonders, was it worth the cost? But isn't that, doesn't that kind of make sense? I mean, we have to work really hard and pay a certain price to achieve what we want or what we need in life. So when you see these people, it's easy somewhat to be judgmental and say, oh, look at that man. He's so totally emaciated and gone without food. And for what? Well, he's working hard to get spiritual, right? He's working really hard to attain some level of, of spirituality, of, of, of an in with God. And he thinks that if he works hard enough, he will be closer to God. And while we might want to criticize even the people who are cutting themselves and beating themselves, and we look at that and we think, they don't have to do that. What are they doing that for? Well, part of that does kind of make sense if you think if they do that enough, somehow they would have paid for some of their sin or worked hard enough to get closer to God. <laughs> because the, being at peace with God's not automatic, is it? So how do you get there? Well, unfortunately, the world we live in is upside down, and people have it all backwards. And they do think that you have to work really hard at this to get somewhere with God. And, and sometimes as Christians, we, we, we probably don't do it intentionally, and probably if we could, we would, we would rewrite how people think Christianity is. But at some level, I think if if we really looked clearly at the way we present Christ, we do make people think that there's certain things you do have to do. Certain ways you have to dress. Certain words you should use. No, you don't do that, do we? We never have done that. Christianity has always been really open to everybody. I mean, what did Jesus do? Who did he hang out with? Did he wear the right clothes? Did he run in the right circles? Not for the, not for the religious community he was in. 
Instead, what happened? He was completely, he was constantly criticized for who he associated with. Because who he associated with were the sinners who needed him most. And when he was criticized, he was quick to tell them, well, guess what? A physician, those who need the physician are the sick. That's who I've come to minister to. Hmm. Interesting. As much as we try in our natural way, we move further from God rather than toward him. It really isn't natural for us to just move toward God. So it does kind of make sense that people think that they have to do something extreme to get to this God who's so holy and so other and so far away from us. And at times, I'm afraid the Christian church, we reinforce that misconception by the way we present Christianity. Now, believe me, I think you should look nice and dress nice and don't smoke, don't chew, don't girl with, go with girls that do. I think all that. But there's times when we're representing Christ and we give the wrong impression. No question that God is holy. There's a great gulf of separation between us and there's us on the other side. No question. That very reason, I think, is in deep inside every human being and we know that we're not worthy. We know that there's a God who's better than us and higher than us, separated from us, And there's a drive within us to reach him and to purify ourselves and to be good enough. And some people look at that and they think, you know what? I can never make it. I will never be as good as you. Never be good enough to make it and never be good enough as some Christian that they think of in their mind. Maybe a neighbor or a grandma or a preacher or somebody that they know who's a super perfect Christian. And some people just give up. Other people get resentful. Other people try to pick at those Christians and say, well, yeah, but they have flaws too. And I think that's because inside of them, they know that they can't do it themselves. And then there's other people who try so hard, they work at purifying themselves somehow. They try to live a good life. A good life. People think that getting to God is is all about some type of cosmic ledger in heaven and if you do enough good things it'll outweigh the bad things and that you'll make it and then that's okay and so they try super hard and do good deeds and give and it's as if working their way to heaven is going to make it some people just try to dull the pain because they feel so hopeless in it they realize they can never do it so they try to fill their lives with other things that just take their mind off of it some people fill it with you know (laughs) entertainment gaming some people fill it with their job and that's all they try to think about some people fill it with sex some people fill it with reading with books so many so many ways that people try to dull the pain of their life the world is totally upside down it's totally upside down they totally misunderstand what christ has done for them and what he wants to do they totally misunderstand And if Jesus could be here himself, what he would do, what he would do is he would say, you've got it all wrong. Let me show you what the kingdom is like. And then he would start telling the stories. The kingdom of God is like this. And then he would do miracles and he would say, the kingdom of God is now come in your presence because this person is healed because that situation has changed. That's what he would do, right? He would... He would represent the kingdom of God the way it's supposed to be, the right-side-up kingdom. 
He would tell them the truth about it, and it would take all of that guilt away from them, all of that trying away from them. Think about this. The holiest person to have ever walked on earth, the holiest one, he didn't didn't make the sinners uncomfortable, did he? Who did he make uncomfortable? The pious religious folks, right? The church. The Sadducees. Pharisees, right? Isn't that who he made uncomfortable? The people who you would normally think would be uncomfortable in the presence of a holy God, the ones full of sin and failure and lives all messed up, they're not the ones who were uncomfortable around him. In fact, they were drawn to him. Why is it that the church today isn't known that way? Instead, the church's reputation is being judgmental, being harsh, being holier than thou. That's our reputation, unfortunately. I personally love breaking down people's stereotypes of what Christianity really is. I love having the opportunity to talk with someone, and then when you talk to them and you, real, you, you finally get to the point where you reveal that you are a Christian, they say, really? Because that's what Jesus would do. As he would talk to them, he would represent the truth about Christianity, and it would be totally different from what they've thought and what they've known all along. <clears throat> In God's kingdom, he comes to reconcile us to himself. I have been asked probably this one question by people more than any other question. Why is Christianity so right? Why do you think it's right? What's the difference between Christianity and every other religion? I can give you a lot of differences, but probably the most basic difference is this. In Christianity, God, the creator... The Holy One comes to us. That's the difference. Every other religion is represented by people crawling on their knees trying to make it to God, purify themselves somehow, hanging themselves on crosses, beating themselves, whatever else they try to do to make themselves holy. But that's not Christianity. In Christianity, the God of the universe literally comes to man. Now that doesn't make sense to the world because they have it upside down. They think that God is some unmovable, impersonal force that's somewhere out there that has this list of requirements that you have to reach before you can come near to him. And that if you don't reach him, he's there to smack you down and smite you. That's how they think. That's upside down. Instead, there's a God of the universe who comes to them. And Jesus told that story over and over and over in so many different ways. Take, for instance, the story of the lost son. What happened in that son? Or, I mean, in that story, you know, that the son came to his father, said, I want my inheritance early. He went and wasted it. The father was looking for him. Think about what that means. He didn't react like most of us human beings would react, where we would say, Don God, no good for nothing, son. He's taken my money and wasted it. Good riddance. That's not what happened. That. This is the definition of reconcile, I'll tell you. God himself stands there, and Jesus, as he's telling these parables, you know, in each one of these parables, these people and characters in the parables represent somebody. In all these parables, and in this one in particular, the Father represents God himself. And God himself is standing there. The Bible says in this story, Jesus, the way he tells it, that the Father is looking for the Son. And he sees him a far way off as the son comes toward him. And then the father literally runs to the son. 
And before the son can apologize, before the son can, can offer to be a servant or anything else, the father reconciles him, puts him back to the place that he was. That's what reconcile means. Returns him to the right standing, puts the robe on him that means he is already back to sonhood, and puts the ring on his finger and says, let's have a party. That is God. The God who comes to us. He, he didn't ask the son to take a bath. You realize that? He didn't ask the son to pay back any money. He didn't ask the son to remove a tattoo. All he did was saw the son moving toward him and he ran to him. And then he reconciled him. He put him back in the place that he always was. The Bible talks about this characteristic, that God literally put righteousness on him. He imputed righteousness to us before we deserved it, before we earned it, before we were good enough for it, before we spoke the right words in the right ways, any of that. God gave it to us immediately. That is, that is Christianity. Every other religion requires that you do this and you do that. They've got eightfold path and all of these things that you have to do to make it to him. And even then, in most of those religions, you don't know and you cannot be sure that you've made it. Christianity's not like that. Our God comes to you. Comes to you. Now, there is a sin bill, right? Sin has to be paid for. Most people don't like that. When you talk about sin, it makes people uncomfortable, doesn't it? Nobody really likes the idea that they've done something wrong or that they're going to get called out on it. Most of us don't like to apologize. Most of us don't like to be realistic about what we have done that may have been offensive or take responsibility for our part in things. But the fact is, every single one of us have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is exempt from that. Every one of us has fallen short in some area or another to a different degree or another. What I love about that is God doesn't compare us one to the other. He has one standard for everybody. That is a comfortable, safe place to be because I don't have to compare myself to other people. I don't have to be as good as them. I don't have to walk as straight as them. What I have to do is come to him, me alone, and he judges me for me. But there is a sin bill. God does require payment for sin. And when you talk to people, even if they're not in church or haven't been in church, and if you present it that way, that somebody has to pay, that there was a relationship broken, something has to be done about that. Most people understand that. Now, we do live in a funny world because sometimes in our upside-down world, people will say something like this, and usually it's kids, but adults, we do the same thing. We'll say, I didn't intend to do it, though. I didn't mean to. As if that takes away or somehow negates the action. Or that, you know, you could talk to somebody like we had recently. I don't know if you noticed that, you know, two Sundays ago at midnight, somebody um, ran into our retaining wall over here. Anybody notice that? It was the south side. And they literally crushed that wall in and burst it back. And, and some guys fixed it for us today. But imagine if he would have stepped out of his car and said, I didn't mean to. We could have said, well, that's nice, but the wall's still broken. Somebody has to fix the wall. Something has to be paid to fix the wall. It doesn't fix itself, and it doesn't go away just because you didn't mean to. There has to be something paid 
Most people understand that. Here's the problem, though. The payment, the payment is our life. It's more than we could possibly pay. But we serve a God, even though we couldn't have bridged it, we serve a God that paid it for us. What people need to understand is that religion and good living isn't the thing that pays the bill. What pays the bill, the beauty of this is that God himself pays his own bill. <laughs> I mean, it's, as if, it's as if you come to him and he says, if you come to me, I will pay. He's still not requiring that we look right, act right, talk right, smell right. None of that. He says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse is packed so full of theological impact. It blows my mind. The God of the universe, the one who created everything, sinless, never knew sin. God made Jesus become sin. I don't think that we can ever fully understand what that means. Because we're sinful. <laughs> because we've done things that were wrong. We can never fully understand that. But to take God of the universe and to make him sin. I wonder what that felt like for him. The God who never knew that, to, to feel it. You know, there's that one course we do that says, I'll never know. How does that go? I'll never know how much it costs to see my sins upon that cross. That, that thought crushes me every time we sing that song. Because I flash back to this verse and think it was my sin that put him there, not his. And the God who never knew sin became sin. You know, Paul doesn't, he, he doesn't mince words here. There's no throwaway words. Every one of these phrases are meaningful and the words are put there on purpose. God made him who had no sin to be sin. For us. For us. He did it for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know who was the righteousness of God before this? J Jesus. Jesus was God's righteousness. And that makes sense to us. That's easy to understand. I mean, he's God incarnate. In fact, I've, I've actually talked with even Christians who would say, but how hard was it really for Jesus to be here? I mean, he was God. And as you talk to them, they'll say, but yeah, he was God, but, but how much of his, of his godness did he put aside? I mean, really, was it really that hard? I mean, was temptation the same as for us? I mean, he was God. He could have called a thousand angels. I say this. I say that made it harder. It made it harder. He was God. Not only that, he had been sinless. So then for him to be tempted and to know that the escape from that was that simple to call a thousand angels, that made it harder. Not only that, he had to to lower himself to the position of man. In the Bible, we have this deep theological term for this. Patrick, this is for you. It's called kenosis, the emptying. He poured out his godhood to experience life as a human. Why? Why would he do that? He did that because he loves you. He cares about you infinitely more than you can even fathom. 
He did it because that's the only way you could be redeemed. The truth is you could never crawl far enough on your knees to, to, to pay for your sin. You could never do it. You could never do anything that would make up for the things that you have done. None of that would be enough. The fact is, the only thing that would be enough is for a sinless sacrifice to come, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And the righteousness of God that was Christ, he has chosen in his grace to make that you. That is amazing. He, he wants to share his righteousness with us. Now, we don't deserve it. You never will. None of us ever will. Don't get hung up on that. Don't think that, oh, I'll never be good. You know what? You're right. No of us, none of us will be good enough. Not you, not me, not anybody. No one in here even comes close to being good enough to have deserved that position in life. But God, in, in his wisdom, he did this that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for you to be the righteousness of God? Well, if Christ was the righteousness of God before that, think about what he wants for you. You to be the joint heir. You to be the in inheritor of all that he has. You to have the relationship with him that Christ has with him. Think, think back for a minute to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. It's the longest prayer we have it recorded in the scriptures. Almost all the prayers in scripture are very, very short with the exception of this prayer. And it is long. Unless you consider some of Psalms to be prayers. In this prayer, though, he prays for the people the disciples and the, and the Christians to come. And he says, God, I want them to be one in unity as you and I are one. How close do you think God and the Son are? <laughs> there is nothing closer. That's closer than any human relationship could ever be. It's, you know, we've all as human beings struggled to even comprehend the Trinity. I mean, what does that mean, three and one? You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're three separate yet one being at the same time. And some of us as humans get, get arrogant enough to say, if I can't understand it, then it can't exist. I laugh at them because I know I don't even understand how electricity really works. I mean, the power comes in from where? How did it get made? But it comes in to the building, and it literally circulates in on one wire and through lights and machines and then out on the other wire and it's conserved and yet part of those wiring is connected to the ground. You realize that, right? There's a ground bar that goes into the ground and some of it's... And yet people say, if I can't understand God, it can't exist. Well, let me tell you, it exists. It's difficult for us to understand. But the fact is that that union between God and the Son is, is the deepest, most incredible union and Jesus wants that for us. Man, why, why would he give us all these things? Why, why would he give us the grace and give us the salvation and consider us worthy of his righteousness and then the unity that Jesus wanted between us is supposed to be like him and the Father? I mean, that just blows my mind. We can never, ever earn that. Nobody, not one of us, not one of you, not one of your neighbors, and anybody who is trying is going to be frustrated. Hmm. Let's go back just a few verses and take a look at this section in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, if anyone is in Christ, meaning coming to Christ and a Christian in Christ, it's one of Paul's favorite phrases. You'll hear that a lot, in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, 
The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What I love about this section is it takes all of the pressure and the responsibility to be perfect enough off of us and puts it on God. You can never get perfect enough. The only way for you to accomplish this is to literally give yourself to him and then let him do the work in you. If you try over and over and over, the best you can hope for is being religious. That's the best you can hope for. And I, if you look at the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Jesus didn't care for those people. Religious people are the people that are turning people away from Christ. They smell bad to people because they smell arrogant and holier than thou. That will never get you there. But if you open yourself up to Christ himself and let him do the work which he promises to do, then he will bring you back, reconcile you, bring you back into the right relationship that he intended for you from the beginning of time. <laughs> from the beginning of time. I love Psalm 139 because it says that before you were formed in your mother's womb that he knew you. He knew you and had a purpose for your life. No matter how you were conceived or, or what your parents were thinking or what generation you're in or you might be one of 12 kids, he knew you. And he had a purpose for you before the foundation of the earth. You have worth from, from beyond creation. Before your parents even knew you were going to be here, he had purpose in mind for you. And with that in mind, he reconciles you back to that place, that purpose that he had in mind for you. And then he turns it here and he says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're going to come back to that. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. Now, I know when I was talking a minute ago about how, how when, the, when the lost son was coming back and the dad didn't say to him to take a bath first, I know some of you were thinking, but people should be certain things before they come, right? We can think that. But look what it says. He was reconciling the world to Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation, which we're going to come back to in a minute. Here's the thing. I, I know I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I love the shirt. Now I can't remember who wore the shirt. If you're here today, you can raise your hand, but somebody had a shirt on and it had a fish and it says, you catch him, he'll clean him. <laughs> you catch him and then God will clean him. Yes, there's a, yes, we have to be holy and yes, God wants us to, to lose the unholy things and, and I could all, we could show you lists in scripture of things that as Christians we're not going to be doing if we love God. He's going to remove those things from us. Yes, there's the fruit of the Spirit, which we should all walk in. You know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Yes, all those things are Christian things. But those are things that after we have come to Him, that He starts to grow in us. He does that work in you. And a lot of times we get in the way. And we think it's something that we have to try so hard to do. But He does the work in us. We are therefore Christ's 
ambassadors. Every time I read that, I think of that song. Anybody old enough in the Assembly of God to remember that song? <laughs> There's like four of us. I tried to find the song like on YouTube. I thought for sure there'd be some old youth group singing it or something. Couldn't. The oldest thing I could find was something from the Assembly of God Archives in 1962, which is the year I was born. That song was written in 1928. Can you believe it? That's that old. Some of you are looking at me like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But those of us who know, there was a song that when I was a kid, okay, when I was a kid coming up, before there were youth groups, what would happen is they would do youth on a Sunday night before the 6 p.m. service, and there would be like, you know, there'd be, it'd go up to like 40, <laughs> but that was youth. And they would sing this song, and the, the youth groups were called Christ Ambassadors, and they would, their, their theme song was, We Are Christ Ambassadors. You guys remember? Our, our flags unfurled. Or, I, mean, <laughs> I read through the words, and I thought, boy, those are really awkward words <laughs> if you read the whole thing. But that, every time I read this verse, I think of that song from childhood. But okay, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now you will notice in these three verses, each of them say the same, they end with the same thought. This one says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. The verse right before says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The verse right before says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Can I, can I give you a tip about the Bible? If it repeats something, it's important. If it repeats it twice, it's really important. Three times, Paul's trying to make a point here. Do you get the point? You are reconciled, and because you've been reconciled, then he has given you that ministry of reconciliation. And here's the verse that, that everything tonight hangs on. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. man, I wish Jesus would come and do this work for us because I don't feel like I'm up to the task most often. Honestly, I don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I have the right words. I don't feel like I can say it the way it needs to be said to convince people who I so desperately want to know the truth. And yet, he deems you worthy. Why? Because you're his righteousness now. Do you see that? You, you should feel like the weight has been taken off your shoulders. And because of that, you could share that with somebody. It's as if you had the cure to cancer that was killing everybody, and you had the cure. You were the one that knew the answer to all life's problems, and it's in Christ. I know that's a lot. Implore means to beg, to just, as much as you can, you want people, you want to convince them with everything you are, that you just can convince them you, you beg them, please, please, please consider this thing that, that has changed my life and it will change yours. Here's something to think about when you're reconciling the world. Think about this. People ask, again, what's so different about Christianity? Here's another huge difference. It's not just his teachings. Jesus never one time said, follow my teachings. What did he say? follow me. Now he did say, if you love me, you'll do what I said. But he said, follow me. It's not just the concept of Christianity and who God is. This isn't just a good idea. When somebody says, well, he was a good teacher. 
Really? You think that's it? That's enough? No, it wasn't just good teaching. That's not it. It's more than that. In fact, it's a lot more than that. It's actually knowing the teacher. You know, the thing is, what makes Christianity different is he is a personal God. It's actually like this. It's not just knowing the teachings. It's the fact that because you know him, that changes your life. But, But really, that's not so different. People get this because it's how the world is made. It really is. It's how things are set up. Think about it for a minute. You think you know somebody, but you don't really know them, right? Until you spend time with them. And then the more time you spend with them, it's not like, I'm sure Dave doesn't ask, ask Debbie her, her opinion on everything. He knows it. Why? Because he spent time with her. How, how long have you guys been dating, married, I mean, together? 30-some years? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Sorry. 43 years. Do you realize that they probably are in sync a lot? You think? Do you see how this works? It's not like he has to read a letter of hers to see what she thinks every day. He should know. Right? Do you see the difference here? We're not just saying, hey, look, look to the writings or follow the teachings or try to live this rule. What it's saying is, if you know him, if you know him, you can know the creator of the universe. He can be your friend, your companion in life. And then as you know him, you're going to know what he wants and expects, and you're going to live and be more like him. Have you ever noticed how you start to talk or act like people you're around for a long time? I'm really bad like that. I pick up accents, and I pick up mannerisms really easy. I really have to watch myself around people because I just do that, and I don't mean to. It just I do it. And maybe you do it too, but I, my mom used to really give me a hard time about it because I'd come home sometimes, and there's this one guy actually, and I was in um, fourth gra- fifth, four, fifth grade, and I came home one day, and she said, she just kept calling me Curtis. I was getting frustrated. Why do you keep calling me Curtis? Well, if you're going to act like Curtis, I'm going to call you Curtis. That's what she said. Well, if you're going to act like Jesus... If you're going to be around him enough that he's going to saturate everything about you and you're going to start to talk like him and think like him. Look at how scripture puts it. Whoever has the son has life. Not the son's teaching, the son himself. You can have Christ himself. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Not just those who follow Christ's teachings, who belong to him, to him, personal. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. Paul puts it like this in other places, that, that the world, once you were in the world, you were a slave to sin. It's no wonder you lived a lot of life of sin because you were a slave to that. That's what controlled you. That's who you were. But because now you belong to Christ, he has freed you from all of that. You are literally declared not guilty. It no longer has power over you anymore. None of that. It doesn't control you anymore. You're saved. 
I know that's Christianese. And typically, we don't want to talk about Christian terminology that other people may not understand. But you know this. You've been saved from that life of, of slavery to sin. You've been saved from that and freed to know God himself. Oh, man. We are therefore, again, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we beg of you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's what it's about. We've talked for a long time. Love God, love others. This is it. Can we, can we think for a minute? When, I, when I'm saying that you have Jesus himself, it's him, not just what he taught. Can we think of some verses maybe that go along with that? How about John uh, 14, 6? Remember what he said there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Remember when Philip was saying, Jesus, we know you're going somewhere, but where are you going? We don't know the way. What did Jesus say? Philip, don't you know if you've known me, you knew the Father? Hebrew says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God. Oh, man. Uh, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Jesus himself will give you that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said in John 12, if I will be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Nick, could I have you come? If you would bow your heads for just a moment. I know most of you in here, but not everybody. And I'd like to give you some privacy with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a minute. Some of what you may have heard tonight may have been new a little bit, maybe a new nuance, a new color or flavor to what you've heard tonight. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you thought, you know what, I don't think I know him like that. I don't think I know Jesus quite like you've described him tonight, but I want to know him like that. If you're here tonight and that is you, and you would like to know him like that tonight, that can happen tonight. And if that is you, I'm just curious, would you just raise your hand real quickly? No intention to embarrass you or bring you up front or parade you around, none of that. Anybody here? Okay. Let me ask you this next thing, though. I'm wondering, again, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I know that you know you don't have to work your way to God, but I wonder how many of us in this room tonight have kind of fallen back into that upside-down kingdom way of thinking. And maybe at some level, you, like me on occasion, feel like, man, I just... I haven't been worthy of him, and you've been working hard to get there and feeling like you haven't been there with him. 
Like maybe your relationship with him has not been what it should be. If you feel like that tonight as we've been talking and you've been feeling the Holy Spirit tugging on you and saying, you need to stop trying so hard and let me work in you. Anybody been feeling that way? Just raise your hand real quickly. Appreciate that. Here's what we're going to do to close our service tonight. I'm going to invite you to these altars to pray. Some of you are probably going to come because you're going to just celebrate and thank God for who he is and what he's done and the fact that you can know him personally. Some of you are going to come just for that reason, that you're going to celebrate that with him tonight. And you're going to come and you're going to pour out yourself to him and just say, God, I am so grateful. I know I'm unworthy and I'm so grateful that you give me your righteousness like that. Some of you are going to come because you know somebody who needs this message desperately. They need to be released from that cycle of trying so hard to be perfect or running after satisfaction or dulling their pain in some area that the world that has convinced them that will, that will work for them and it's not working and you know the answer and your heart right now is burdened for them and I invite you to come and cry out to God for them. So as Nick leads us, why don't we all stand up and I invite you to come for one of those reasons. Either to celebrate